welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to my favorite coffee story. Welcome to all our listeners around the world. We're so glad you've joined us. And a big hello to you from Anikona Farm. And we have an incredible show today. We're talking about exploring the Titanic and coffee stories. We have truly an amazing guest joining us, Stockton Rush. And before I introduce Stockton, we're having our Anikona Farm moment. You know, I've been having a lot of questions from, from our listeners about what Peaberry coffee is. And when we picked our 12,000 pounds of Kona coffee, every single bean by hand, we ended up with a small amount of Peaberry. And what Peaberry is, it's a very small, about the size of a pea, but it's an entire bean. So it's not the half bean that we're pretty much accustomed to, but it's an actual, it's the whole bean, and that's what we call pea berry. So our Kona coffee, we had a few pounds of pea berry this year, and we've been actually sharing that on our website. And some people say that because of the shape of the bean, that it's circular, it sort of maybe even affects that it's a little bit more evenly roasted as opposed to the half beans. Uh, some people say it has maybe a bit more roasted robust flavor. But in any case, that's a little bit about Peaberry and um, and our Anikona Farm moment. And now let's introduce our wonderful guest, Stockton Rush, who's the Chief Executor, Executive Officer and Co-Founder of OceanGate. They're working on the next generation manned submersible solutions for subsea operations for commercial as well as defense sectors. And Stockton, we're so glad you've joined us today. Thank you and welcome. Welcome to you. It's great to be here, or at least oh, virtually. <laughs> We're so glad you're with us today, and we are going to be talking about what you're working on over there at Ocean Gate, and that you're going to be doing a Titanic expedition. And we thought it would be fun to talk about all that you're doing, especially since the Titanic is a, just a special, almost time capsule of life as it was about a hundred years ago. Unfortunately, the Titanic during its maiden voyage had sunk. Uh, in 1912, and I guess it was on its way from Southampton to New York City, and uh, it actually didn't make it, and it sunk off the coast of Newfoundland, I guess about 370 miles. And as we were kind of reading about the Titanic, it's pretty incredible to note that you know, it was such a luxury liner, and dining in particular on the Titanic was truly a spectacular event. And that day, actually, when it sunk, we found that the uh, ship's bugler, Peter W. Fletcher, would go and pass from deck to deck, and he will play the song, The Roast Beef of Old England. I guess that was the traditional notice that White Star ships would say that food is being served and people would collect in the dining rooms. And just an example of 
what dining was like or what what life was like on the Titanic. That day on April 14th on 1912, its first class dinner included hors d'oeuvres, oysters, consomme Olga, cream of barley salmon, uh, a mousseline sauce and cucumber. Then they had a course of filet mignon, lamb, roast duckling, and another meat with vegetables. Of course, then came the roast squab, cold asparagus, and a pâté de foie gras. And then dessert came, which was a Waldorf pudding, peaches and jelly, chocolate and vanilla, eclairs, French vanilla ice cream, and then special coffee and tea. And we found out that on the Titanic, they carried over one ton of coffee. So Stockton, tell us a little bit, please, uh, just about your early days and of your career. And I know you have a degree in aerospace engineering from Princeton University. And some of your favorite classes at Princeton and some of your favorite stories as a student there during your early days of your career. Well, you know, unusually, as, a, as an engineer, some of my favorite classes were actually in the liberal arts, um, you know, Near Eastern history, sculpture, anything to take my mind off of numbers, because I spent most of my time working on thermodynamics and aerodynamics and, you know, uh, advanced physics and things like that. So uh, uh, a little bit, little bit odd, maybe I should have been a liberal arts major, but uh, <laughs> I did, uh, I, you know, I, I had never drank coffee until I got to college, and, uh, and then it was... That ever since, <laughs> so I did, did make that change. Never started as a, as a child, but um, really uh, went into the field of aerospace engineering because I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to wow. uh, be the be the first person to set foot on Mars. Um, figured I would uh, go into the military and become a, a jet pilot, and instead went off and did some commercial flying, and and uh, eventually came to the conclusion that everything I've I thought was in space is actually underwater. All the new life forms and the amazing discoveries um, are in the ocean. And uh, as I like to say, by, by definition, in the vacuum of space, there is nothing, which is why the view is so good. That's so, it's been, so well put. But it's, uh, it's been just, you know, the last 10 years or so that I've been working on OceanGate, it's been just incredible to, to see uh, both the increase in ocean awareness um, around the planet and then, you know, I've gained a great deal of knowledge as, as my team on a lot of the, the nuances of, of going underwater. Um, most of our engineers are from the aerospace industry being being here in Seattle. That, that tends to be a, an area of expertise and, and it's really interesting to apply uh, a, a different paradigm, being underwater, you know, dealing with high pressure versus the vacuum of space and, uh, and a very defined um, physical environment, but an undefined biological environment versus space where the physical environment's sort of uh, less, less well understood. Absolutely. That's so interesting, Stockton. How, what sparked that initial interest in flight? Um, it started a friend of my father's, a gentleman by the name of Pete Conrad, and Pete Conrad was on Apollo 12, and, and he and my father had grown up in Philadelphia, um, and uh, I think they got kicked out of grammar school together. Um, and, and we met with him when I was oh, about 16. And uh, he, as I said, he was, uh, on Apollo, he was uh, on Apollo 12. He was commander of Apollo 12. He was on the first Skylab mission where they had to fix it and put up these giant umbrellas as they repaired the solar panels and the guidance systems. And it really accomplished great guy. And, and when I told him I wanted to be an astronaut, uh, he said, well, you better learn to fly. 
because at that point, that was really the route was, was test pilot. Uh, it only became, uh, it was just starting to change with the space shuttle and uh, the space station where um, scientists and, and uh, experts in different fields would go to space. But at the time, you really had to be a jet pilot. And he said, look, you should get your pilot's license. So my father said, well, there you go. That's your 17th birthday present. I'm going to get you, you know, I'll pay to have you get your pilot's license, which is very kind of him. And I did that uh, the summer of my uh, junior year in high school. And uh, and then it just took off on its own. I, I kept flying. Um, I My eyesight is uh, 20, uh, 25, so good enough to drive a car without glasses, but not good enough to be a fighter pilot. Um, I then thought, well, maybe I'll uh, get a PhD, which was becoming, it was possible at that point, this mission specialist position uh, was becoming more prevalent in the NASA hiring ranks. And uh, so I, uh, I went off and worked for uh, the McDonnell Douglas Corporation on the F-15 program, eventually worked on the anti-satellite missile program, which I thought was sort of ironic to be working on shooting down satellites when I really wanted to go into space. And then um we realized that I wasn't going to get a PhD and, um, and the, but the flying thing just stayed with me and I, I kept, kept doing that. Um, went and, uh, went into business thinking I would, uh, be a space tourist. So I figured at some point that would happen. This was probably in 1990. I was thinking this. And, uh, and then when that actually became feasible, I went down to see the launch of spaceship one, which was the Burt Rutan and uh, Paul Allen project. And at the end of that launch, Richard Branson stood on the wings of the uh, of the plane as it came in, uh, the space plane, and said he was ushering in the new age of space tourism. That he had a hundred people already signed up, and and I had this epiphany that that wasn't why I wanted to go to space. I didn't really want to go to space. I just wanted to explore. I wanted to be Captain Kirk. I wanted to to see all these new things. <laughs> and I realized that sitting as a tourist in the back of a spacecraft wasn't wasn't the same. And, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I started focusing on scuba diving, which is um, something I had been doing since I was 14. And, and in fact, uh, Aniko, it was on a scuba trip with your husband and another friend of ours in, uh, in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island in 2003 that I um, took a cold water dive class for the first time and saw the most amazing things. I saw a gigantic, you know, these giant Pacific uh, octopuses that can weigh up to 300 pounds, and you could see it crunched in the rocks. And I saw a crab trap with crabs running in and out of it. It was just the most amazing stuff, but it was absolutely miserably cold. The water was 43 degrees. I couldn't stand all the gear and all the equipment, and I just thought, you know, I really loved what I saw and hated the whole you know, process of it. And I went right. online to see about renting a sub. And uh, realize, as, as I would find out now, there are a bunch of places that say they can rent you a sub. But in fact, uh, when you call them up, which I did, uh, they really don't have subs to rent. They really use that to find people they might sell subs to. So unless you happen to be in one of the very few places where a sub's for charter, uh, you can't get them. And next thing you know, I ended up one of these guys found out that I built an airplane. And uh, he said, if you built an airplane, you can finish a sub that's sitting in Santa Rosa. And unfortunately, I made the guy an offer for his sub, and he took it. And that Incredible was story. Wow. Well, it is interesting to note, Stockton, that you actually personally built your Glass Air 3 uh, experimental aircraft all yourself, and you still fly it today. I think you built that in 1989. Is that right? That is correct. I, every time I get out of it, I'm, I'm, I'm 
quite impressed. <laughs> it keeps keeps working. It's a great great design. It's, it's a great airplane, and and it really was, um, you know, for a, for a first plane, it's it's worked out very well. It has, and actually, it's probably important to note for our listeners around the world that Stockton Rush he actually became the youngest jet transport rated pilot in the world at age 19 in 1981, which is really amazing. It sounds like you would spend your college summers flying out of like Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and you'd be flying into locations like Cairo and Damascus. What what was that like, Stockton? Well, that was, um, you know, I, I, I think I had the best summer job of anyone in college. Um, a, uh, again, another friend of my father's, um, I actually gone to high school with his son, um, ran an airline and the company was called overseas national airways. And it had been around multiple iterations since the Vietnam war. And it, it supplied planes and crews, um, on what's called a wet lease contract contract to Saudi Arabian airlines. And the Saudis would pay for the gas and the airline would, the, this company overseas national airways would supply the crews and the planes. And they would fly these mass movements. So the Hajj is one. Uh, there's also what's called the teachers movement, which is where they bring in all these teachers into the kingdom for um, to work. And then they have to go home for their vacation and then they come back. So they have these, these surges in demand and they go, um, I don't know if they still do this, but they would always go out and contract. So people who had done international flying, a lot of them have um, you know, companies like uh, British Airways, you name it, everybody will ship their planes to the Middle East if they've got capacity and they would fly a million and a half to two million people into Saudi Arabia from everywhere from, you know, Indonesia and uh, uh, India to Tunisia and, and Syria and you name it. And so uh, this friend told my father, he said, look, if your son can get checked out to fly a DC-8, um, you know, I can get him a job as a co-pilot. And uh, through a, a variety of different things, I went to the United Airlines Jet Training Institute in Denver um, the summer of my freshman year. And in a little more than three weeks, I uh, got my DCA type rating and then went to, uh, to Saudi Arabia and uh, worked out of Jeddah, flying uh, a lot of flights to Jeddah to Cairo, occasionally into uh, Tunisia, occasionally into Khartoum, uh, Nairobi, one flight to Bombay, up to Europe, taking cargo. It was just an amazing job. And then I come back and go to school because the surge of of um, traffic dies down. The Hajj is, you know, uh, a uh, multi multi month activity, and then it goes quiet. And so I did that for the summer of my um, uh, last part of my freshman year, uh, my sophomore year, and my junior summers. And it was it was you know to to bring coffee back into the picture. It was where I learned that uh, most long haul. Uh, flying, or uh, I wouldn't say most, a lot of people drink a lot of coffee flying planes. And it really helps uh, after a long flight to perk you up as you need to scan the instruments very rapidly on landing. And uh, it was, uh, uh, I I tried once to go toe to toe with one of the captains every time he had a cup of coffee, I did. And we went from Jeddah to Cairo four times. And I didn't sleep for two days after that. Oh, my, did you actually try Saudi coffee, Stockton? Uh, I, I did try it. I didn't like it. So we'd, we'd have, uh, it wasn't particularly good. We'd have uh, like Nescafe on the, <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> Nothing oh, wrong with Nescafe. Are, 
No, not at all. Well, and you you have had so many adventures. Uh, thank you for sharing how you actually did all that flying in the Middle East. And you are definitely not new to adventure. And we've really had so much fun chatting with you. We're going to actually take a quick break. And we are excited to have our listeners join us right after the break to talk a little bit more about your adventures with Ocean Gate and how you ended up developing Cyclops One. So please join us right after the break. Thank you. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We are having such fun with Stockton Rush, who's the CEO and co-founder of OceanGate. And we have been talking about some of Stockton's early days and how he actually developed his interest and passion about flight, and then how he decided he wanted to actually explore the oceans. And we were just going to talk a little bit more about how Stockton and his team developed a submersible solution, a sub called Cyclops One. Stockton, tell us about how that came about and how you created Cyclops One. Well, um, as I started to focus on the marine world and and trying to look to find a sub to rent and ended up building one, 
I was shocked to find out how few subs there are um, in the world. So there are roughly in the order of 600 nuclear, or not nuclear, military subs. But in the research side, it's, you know, between 100 and 200 subs, of which only a few, you know, maybe half are active at any time. So it's very rare. Um, most people don't appreciate that, and they think, you know, there are a, a reasonable number of tourist subs that go shallow, but the, the ones that will go deep, and, and the average depth of the ocean is almost 14,000 feet. So there are uh, only five subs um, that are able to go to that depth, and they're all owned by governments. And so I tried to figure out why is this and didn't make sense if three quarters of the planet um, is water and 99% of the livable volume on this planet is in the water and most of the species are in the water and we came from the water. How come you can't get in the water? And so uh, when I looked at it, I realized that um, it's not as much the, the cost of the sub and the subs are fairly straightforward, particularly if you compare them to an airplane or even a car. Um, but the challenge is the environment. And, you know, operating in a marine environment is completely different than, than on land. So the most dangerous place on the planet is between you know, where the air and water meet. That interface is really a difficult uh, area. And the cost of operating a sub was all about the ship. And so I started to look at how can I use any old ship, not a custom-made research vessel, which is why most of the subs were very expensive. And so we looked at what's called launch and recovery systems, I looked at new materials. A lot of work had been done on carbon fiber uh, in compression. So most of the history of mankind has been looking at, at dealing with uh, tensile forces, so things like gun barrels and, and uh, uh, beams of buildings. It's usually when it's in tension, it's being loaded up. Compression um, is not, hasn't had as much uh, focus until the last uh, 30 or 40 years in material science, the big thing being for um, some new, new materials, you know, boron carbide impregnated carbon fiber um, is something that's been used for protecting um, vehicles for improvised explosive devices. So a lot of military money has gone into new material technology that does well in extreme compression, which is what you see uh, in the ocean. So with, with all that research on sort of there's these new materials that are great for making subs, there are new methods for launching them that don't involve big ships. I came up with this idea for a carbon fiber and titanium sub and a launching system that was a effectively a sinking barge that you could tow behind any ship and then you'd sink it and you'd, you'd do your, um, your launch of your sub underwater where it's nice and calm, not on the surface where the waves are slapping you around. And that all led to the development of, of Cyclops 1, which is the prototype for Cyclops 2, which is the sub that will go to the Titanic. And the Cyclops 1 was very successful with the dive that you did to explore the Andrea Doria wreck. Tell us a little bit about how that went. Well, so we um, uh, have uh, wanted to test not just the so Cyclops 1, the same shape generally and the same motor controllers and life support systems as Cyclops 2. It's just it has a steel hull, which is very traditional, um, as opposed to the carbon fiber hull. So we wanted to test out everything from the, the systems that we use to launch the sub, but also the procedures for, say, charging these batteries at sea under uh, high power while it's being towed behind um, a offshore supply vessel. So we chartered a vessel out of Boston 
from a company called Boston Harbor Cruises, and they was a 110 foot um, flat decked uh, support ship, and we towed the sub and its platform um, over. Uh, 150 miles around Cape Cod to the wreck of the Andrea Doria, which is about 50 miles south of Nantucket. And there we conducted a number of dives. Uh, we encountered the remnants of a hurricane, so that cut, we only got to do about half the dives we planned. Um, but it really worked well to bring in the this model that we came up with of engaging um, clients who want to support ocean exploration and research and want to participate in it. So we had uh, individuals who supported the mission and then got to be active working crew participants as we dove um, on the wreck of the Andrea Doria. And it it really helped us validate both systems and um, processes and procedures, as well as the sort of client piece. How How do you train these lay people on how to operate a sonar system or um, how to fill up the carbon dioxide scrubber and, and really engage them in, in this mission, which is fundamentally what we seek to do with the Titanic and other projects. We really want people who come along to be active participants, not just tourists. And that Andrea Doria, it sounds like there was a lot of good research that you learned that you can apply certainly to the Titanic dive. Did you also go to about 12,000 feet or so with Cyclops 1? No, Cyclops 1 is limited to 1,600 feet, so you know, dramatically less than the Titanic. What's, what's challenging with subs is the, the real dangers on the surface, um, and in fact, the real dangers on the boat, not on the sub. In, in the last 35 years, there hasn't even been a serious injury in a research sub. Um, now, military subs are a completely different story, but when you look at uh, commercial or, or research submersibles, they're extremely safe. The, the difficult thing is, is, again, the surface, and then it's the first few feet. Once you get down 10, 20 feet, it starts to tighten up. It's not like you have, we don't have any rivets to pop like Das Boot or something. It, you know, yes. it, it, everything it, you know, gets tighter and tighter, and, and we, uh, by, by practice and by rule, don't operate in an area where the bottom is greater than the strength of the sub. So what normally um, hurts a military sub is they're over very deep water and they lose control of their, um, their depth and then it crumples like a can at a certain depth. And in a research sub operated properly, you don't have that problem. So for what we need to do, the, the first few hundred feet are, are fine. We can test all our systems. Uh, the, the challenge with as you're getting deeper is making sure that the pressure vessel, the hull that all the people are in, is able to withstand the extreme pressures as you go as you go deeper. Absolutely. And I know you've met some amazing people along the way. You have an incredible team. And you also had an astronaut join us, join you on that particular dive of the Andrea Doria. Tell us a little bit about one of your maybe a, a favorite story on one of these expeditions like the Andrea Doria. Well certainly, yes. Yeah. So the uh, that individual gentleman by the name of Scott Perizinski. Um, he has a, uh, a great book, uh, The Sky Below, that came out recently, and he'll be joining us uh, on the Titanic as well as uh, one of our two um, onboard doctors. So, so Scott has been to space five times. He has climbed Mount Everest, and he's a medical doctor. He was actually the uh, doctor in charge of uh, medical uh, issues for the Antarctica, uh, Antarctic um, uh, Station, um, and so he's going to be a great expeditionary doctor for us um, on the Titanic. He's also a, uh, we call it a level one rated sub-pilot, and we will get him uh, capable to actually do dives to the Titanic with us. Um, 
and he's just been you know great individual. He's been involved in a number of the missions. We did one in the Gulf of Mexico that he joined us for, and and brings a wealth of knowledge from from the NASA approach um, to um, you know what what it takes to to climb Everest. Um, you know what was I you know, I found most exciting on the Andrew Doria mission in, in particular was as you go off offshore um, and you get close to the wreck, you start to see lots of lots more life. You know, tons of dolphins and sharks and marine life, and then they tend to congregate around wrecks. Um, and so it was really, a, a, you know, it's great fun to go in the sub and then have dolphins come up to the dome and, and look and wonder what the heck we're doing. Or I've had uh, a squid come along and do the same thing and, and just stare. And they're, they're as curious as about, about me as I am about them. And every time you have that interaction when you're underwater like that, and it's so different than scuba diving because you can stay down as long as you want. And you don't have to worry about, is this going to bite me? Or, um, you know, <laughs> where's my buddy? Or am I cold? You're sitting there having a glass of water and, and you can, you know, I've sat, spent two hours watching two crabs fight down at 200 feet underwater. Just amazing things to, to, to experience. Those are great stories. And you've done a lot of research, uh, ocean research, and I know you provide a curriculum for students and educators. Tell us about that program, please. Yeah, I, uh, curriculum is probably not the right word. We did look at that. What we, what we do is we try, and, and when I started OceanGate, I, I thought, well, you know, I really just want to expand humanity's understanding of the, of the ocean, and maybe this should just be a nonprofit. But I found that, you know, nonprofits tend to be inefficient and, you know, the profit motive tends to, to get things to be efficient. And if we couldn't make manned uh, exploration um, profitable, it wasn't going to just happen because it's the right thing to do. And it really all great changes, you know, come about because of a military or commercial need. And so I wanted to find out how can I create a, a, an ongoing venture. But at the same time, I realized that I had gone and gotten an aerospace engineering degree and spent all this time you know, working to go to space. Had I known that what I wanted to do was explore and discover stuff, maybe I would have been a marine biologist instead. And it was never really presented to me. And, I, you know, the, the media is pushing you know, the Star Wars and uh, 2001 Space Odyssey and Star Trek and all these shows that I had watched growing up. And the Jacques Cousteau era was dying out as I was a kid. Um, the, um, you know, there, there had been a lot of underwater things that were big in the 60s and 70s. Those had sort of fizzled. And it really, um, I wanted to, to come up with a way to inspire kids to see the opportunities in STEM-based ocean um, careers or uh, just working in the ocean. And so what we do is when we take uh, any of our um, uh, submarines on an expedition. So we've been to British Columbia and the Gulf of Mexico and Andrea Doria. We will, uh, our, the Ocean Gate Foundation puts on uh, events uh, at those locations for local school children, um, local uh, colleges. Um, we also, uh, the foundation also uh, funds the expenses of bringing students. Uh, we'll have a couple of interns on the Titanic mission. Um, and then in, when we're not on mission, we'll go out to the local boys and girls club and I'll take uh, the, the first sub that I built and, and show it to, uh, to the students and, and really try to light that spark of um, enthusiasm for education and technology. And I think that really needs to be on a one-to-one. It's, it's difficult to do that just by you know, video and, um, and watching uh, a YouTube. You really, really, it, there's a real value to having them talk to our pilots and see that 
envision themselves as somebody who might explore the ocean. Thank you for doing that, Stockton. That is so inspiring for for students, and it helps them see the possibilities. And so I really appreciate it, and our listeners are just so inspired that you do that, which is really wonderful. As you're creating the team, and for Cyclops, are what's you can accommodate maybe about five people in that um, sub. Is that about right? That's correct. Uh, you know, um, uh, five, five in crew includes the pilot and the what we call mission specialists and researchers. Right. So it sounds like now you're in the thick of creating Cyclops 2. And how is that going, Stockton? That's, it's going extremely well. This is the, the whole uh, purpose of this is, you know, again, to make it commercially viable. But I really wanted to go deep. Um, as I started to research the ocean, I realized that when you get below um, 1,000 to 1,500 feet, um, all the life forms change. And, and that's because um, uh, above that, the, uh, the biology goes up and down. And so you have, uh, it, it's the kind of fish that you're used to seeing. And once you get below at this area, the deep scattering layer, where when you look up, it's black. And so if you can look up and see the surface, um, you get different life forms because there's a whole predator-prey response that goes on when you get down you see a lot more invertebrates and just these bizarre you know space looking you know creatures exist and i thought i want to go down to at least you know 2000 feet and so i started to to dig into it and the the whole cyclops program was let's make something that can at least get to half the ocean depth being about uh, almost 14000 feet so uh, that project uh, took many years uh, we started we kicked it off almost 4 years ago and Cyclops 2 will go in the water on Thursday um, for the first time. And then we will do a, a whole series of shallow tests. Again, the challenge being surface operations um, and, and shallow operations really let you, con- you know, test a lot of the control systems and the processes. And then uh, after we've done a number of shallow tests in the uh, Everett, uh, Washington area, we will take the submersible to the Bahamas and do the deep tests um, off of Abaco uh, in uh, in mid to late April, and that will That's- set us up for that sub to go to the Titanic uh, expedition in late June. And that's going to be amazing because I know the Titanic is uh, the depth. Of, if I have that right, it's about twelve thousand five hundred feet. Is that so? It sounds like with Cyclops too, you're going to be um, able to do that, and you're preparing. And that's exciting. I didn't realize that this week is its first test. Have you been building that there in Everett, Washington, in the Seattle, Washington area? Yes, it's um, uh, it's essentially final assembly. The the carbon fiber hull was wound down in Sacramento, California. The titanium uh, came out of parts of it came out of Texas. Some of the machining was done in New Jersey. Um, the motors come out of Southern California. Our batteries are from Spain. So all these parts show up in Everett, and you put them together. Um, uh, we we've got sonar systems from Denmark and. Uh, a guidance system from France, uh, laser systems from Canada. So stuff is coming from all over the world and really coordinating what equipment you have, when it shows up, how it all integrates together is, is one of the big challenges. Such an amazing project and it's very exciting and we wish you well definitely with its first test this week, Stockton. And it's been so fun to hear about some of the expeditions you've done like the Andrea Doria. So when we come back 
after the break. We're going to take a quick break. Please join us. We're going to talk more about the Titanic and the Titanic expedition that Ocean Gate is doing right after the break. Thanks for joining us. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're having such an amazing chat with Stockton Rush, CEO and co-founder of OceanGate. We were talking a little bit about some of the explorations that OceanGate has done, and now they're getting ready the end of June to do a a big Titanic expedition with their new manned submersible called Cyclops 2. Stockton, we're so glad you're with us. Tell us a little bit more about the Titanic shipwreck and some and some of the things you're hoping to learn. Okay. Um, so uh, no one's been back to the Titanic. The last mission was in 2010, and that was using robots. Uh, the, the last manned uh, expedition to the Titanic was back in 2005, uh, and that was done by uh, the Russians. So back when the Russians needed hard currency, they would uh, lease out their um, state uh, submersibles, the Mir 1 and 2, and their research ship. And uh, a group would uh, market a, a tourist um, experience to go see the Titanic um, with, with quite uh, good success. Um, but the, the, uh, the Russians have uh, put those subs into um, uh, layup status for the last several years and the ship's been moved on and, and they don't like to do these kind of tourist things anymore. So that, that opportunity went away and, and we saw a, a chance to, to attract uh, the kind of explorers and adventurers that we think we would need to do a whole number of other exciting missions um, to, to go uh, to attract them through the Titanic because it is such a, a well-known wreck. It's probably the most known object in the ocean and we wanted to make this experience different than a tourist experience. We wanted to, to go 
get data on, on one of the principal questions, which is how quickly is the Titanic dissolving? So they've discovered that the, the rusticles, which are dripping off the Titanic, are a biological organism, that a bacteria that's eating the steel. And there is a uh, disagreement in the research community as to how, how long is that going to happen? Is it uh, some, uh, some researchers saying that Titanic will melt away in 20 years and others are saying, no, the, the rate's going to de- decline because it's going to get entombed by this bacteria and it won't go any further. So there's, there's not a good answer as to how, how quickly is it dissolving. And, uh, and so that's one of the questions. And we'll go down with uh, 4K resolution cameras, which has never been done before on the Titanic, as well as uh, a laser scanning system so we can get very accurate measurements uh, and be, go back every year to see what the, what the rate of change is. And that's so one of, the, one of the key research components that we hope to come away with. Uh, on top of that, there are a number of unique species that have been uh, seen on the Titanic. And then the debris field, which covers almost five uh, square kilometers, uh, has only been lightly uh, mapped. And so you know, certain large objects have been seen, but there, there's a number of, of personal effects and, and, uh, and things like that that have not been scanned or examined. So we're going to have quite a bit um, for our mission specialists to work with us on, and we're bringing uh, four different researchers, and I mentioned a, a student intern, um, out as well. So it'll be quite a, quite a six-week expedition. So if someone were interested in joining you, how, how best is it for them to become involved, Stockton? Well, the, uh, certainly at the, at the beginning stages of everything, it's, it's always expensive. So when we, um, we looked at this and we needed individuals to support it to help, to help fund the operation, um, we decided to charge uh, a, a mixed thing. We have uh, individuals need to fill out an application, and then we have an interview with them to make sure they are, understand that we expect them to participate and not just, you know, it's not just a tourist trip. Um, and then the cost is $105,129 U.S., which um, is the inflation-adjusted price of a ticket on the Titanic in 1912. That was the uh, Vanderbilt suite, and it was, I think, $4,500. In comparison, the cost of a third-class ticket on the Titanic in inflation-adjusted dollars is about 600 So huge, yeah. huge difference between the first class and the third. Um, and so uh, that's one method by which individuals participate. Um, we have, as I said, some uh, students that we take out very, not that many on this first year. We'll take more uh, later. Um, we actually have um, uh, some uh, uh, film and uh, media crews that are coming out on a volunteer basis. And we hope uh, after we map the uh, wreck to be able to uh, present a virtual reality experience of the Titanic as it is today. Um, with uh, a lot of the uh, 3D um, glasses that you can use, both use your cell phone or the more expensive things like the um, uh, the Oculus Rift or other uh, virtual reality headsets. So we, we're, our hope is to to create this database and then be able to make that available to those who can't afford to come out and see the wreck in person. They can in, in fact explore it and explore this debris field and, and find these personal effects that are out there that, that really tell a whole story of what life was like in, in 1912 in, in Europe and the United States. And so that, that ability to bring an underwater experience to those who can't afford to get out there is really one of the critical elements of the, of the mission. 
Thank you so much for bringing that to all of us so that we can share and what you learn and what you see. And I think your camera equipment is going to definitely make it so uh, lifelike. So we really appreciate that. And I'm curious, too, that I guess after 1985, uh, it, that was probably the first time, I guess, that maybe the wreck had been discovered. And since then, there's been a lot of controversy about the ownership of the artifacts. And I guess now it's those artifacts are protected by the UNESCO Convention. So you probably have had to do certain permits or, or um, how does that work when you're exploring the wreck? Yeah, so um, it is... Um there were salvage rights had been granted to RMS Titanic Corporation um, by a U.S. court. It's sort of unusual. You have a, a British ship in international waters, and the closest country is Canada, and for some reason the U.S. is granting the salvage rights. But the RMS Titanic Corporation uh, got those, brought up uh, 5,500 5, different objects, including a huge section of the hull. Uh, they've had those on display. Uh, there's a, uh, a display at the Luxor in um, uh, Las Vegas, and they have other pieces that have made their way around. And, and that company is now in bankruptcy and is looking to sell those artifacts in one uh, one large section. And, and that that bankruptcy sale has been delayed multiple times, uh, and it's now on a I take a permanent hold. But so there's some some question as to whether they will go back and and what their salvage um, opportunities are. You know, OceanGate is not interested in salvage. We're really interested in the historical preservation of it. Um, yes. while, it is a, uh, while it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it is really unregulated, which is a, a challenge. A lot of uh, both the U.S. and the U.K. have reached an agreement to um, restrict the uh, salvage uh, or the disturbance of the wreck by their citizens, but other countries don't have that. Um, so, uh, the fact that we are just going to photograph it uh, and scan it um, was um, uh, litigated uh, between the group working with the Russians and RMS Titanic Corp many years ago. And the uh, I think it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was determined that, uh, that uh, viewing an object is not salvaging. And so the uh, Russian expeditions were able to move forward. And we're doing largely the same thing. We, in fact, our submersible will not even have a... A mechanism for taking anything back. We don't have what's called a manipulator um, to further emphasize that we're there to scan, to survey, and to to treat the site as a um, it is a grave site. You know, over fifteen hundred people yes. died there, and so you know we have yes. we have no interest in destroying this any more than we would taking something from the beaches of Normandy. Um, but uh, there is there is controversy about uh, others and other countries that could go salvage, and that 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 is. Uh, one of the reasons we stay out of that, we're, we're all about um, observing, researching, and, and not disturbing. Yes, thank you for clarifying that, Stockton. So it sounds like that iceberg, actually, there are two components to the Titanic, um, like the sh and there's some distance between the two parts of the ship, and possibly one part is a little bit better preserved for the other. So you'll be exploring probably all aspects of the ship, I would think, with Cyclops too. Uh, yes, yeah, we, that's our goal. So the bow section and the stern section there's a, there, uh, are separated by a kilometer, more than a kilometer. Uh, and there's a uh, James Cameron's done a great deal of work on analyzing um, how the wreck went down, both for the film and then after that. So there's actually documentaries on his work to analyze how do the two parts separate and and you know what's the nature of of how they made their way through the water column. 
Um, so uh, the uh, the bow section obviously is the most iconic and the one that people have remember from the movie. Um, but it did hit the hit the bottom at, at very high velocity. Uh, the stern section was less hydrodynamic, so it didn't hit quite as hard, but isn't as exciting. And then um, uh, there are there's the debris field, and, and there are just amazing things at that depth in general, um, independent of the wreck, the different different life forms there. But it is a uh, uh, as I said, it's uh, it, there's been been a great deal of work, and, and it really is a, a testament to uh, James Cameron uh, the amount of uh, uh, resources and time he's put into understanding how that um, how the entire uh, wreck made its way through the water column and and, and landed on the seafloor. And it seems like too, after that happened, uh, there was a lot more safety brought into um, you know luxury liners and safety procedures. And apparently, there weren't enough lifeboats on to accommodate everyone on the Titanic. What are some of the the new safety regulations? I guess that we still have today as a result of the Titanic shipwreck. Well, the, 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 the most significant one that you just mentioned is the requirement that there be uh, more than enough seats on the lifeboats for, um, for individuals on, on a ship. Um, you know, a lot of the safety drills, but, you know, are, are also involved. There were, um, at the time, there were, uh, no rules requiring people to listen to the, um, uh, telegraph. So, uh, one of the, uh, ships that was nearby, I think it was the California, I think was the name of it was, was there and, and, didn't have its uh, Marconi radio on, so it didn't hear the distress um, uh, signals. Uh, they also ignored the signal flares. It was a huge, huge crisis at the time. So, so a lot of the rules of um, re- related to um, requirements that ships uh, be listening to their radios at all times. Uh, this, these life preservers, lifeboat drills, um, and the like, um, you know, came out of that. It was just such a huge um, uh, earth-shattering event. And, and those those safety guidelines have continued to this day. And, and their and, spirit is in the same mode, you know, of, of the need to listen yes. to emergency frequencies and have, have tracking systems. Absolutely. And just... What was on the Titanic is truly amazing. Uh, I had mentioned that there was more than a ton of coffee, but in it, to so accommodate these dining experiences, they had oh, 1,500 bottles of wine, 20,000 bottle, bottles of beer, uh, other liquors, etc. And then they had 12,000 dinner plates, 8,000 forks, 3,000 teacups for the coffee and tea. It's uh, it's pretty incredible, the level of luxury that was on the Titanic. Um, truly amazing. Well, we're going to be excited to see all that all that you um, experience as you're as you're doing the dive, and we wish you really well with that. That Stockton is just incredible, and and we wish you well with the preparation, and we appreciate you sharing all those things. I know you do a variety of projects, and um, the Titanic project is definitely one that is so exciting. What's down the road after the Titanic, Stockton? Well, the project I really have wanted to do is uh, hydrothermal vents. Um, so there are thousands of hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean. And these um, communities are uh, called extremophiles. So it's, uh, they're an area where um, 
the you have water that comes out from the crust of the um, uh, of the planet at 300 degrees centigrade, and it hits water that is at zero degrees. And there are shrimp and tube worms and crabs that live in this environment, and it's completely independent of photosynthesis, called chemosynthesis. And it's one of the great discoveries of uh, the last century that most people don't appreciate that it completely upended. Um, our view of what is necessary to promote life. So when I went to school, I was told everything was about photosynthesis and that that was the basis of everything. And in fact, that's not the case. And this discovery um, allowed NASA uh, or, you know, keep NASA to the idea that the most likely spot for life uh, in our solar system and in the universe in general are aquatic environments. Um, the icy moons of uh, Saturn and uh, Jupiter are the number one spots that NASA thinks they will find extraterrestrial life. And what's unique about the, or funny about this, I guess, is they're spending billions of dollars to look at that, and yet we still don't know the life that's in our own ocean. So we might go to Jupiter and find a funny-looking shark that might exist in the in the deep, you know, ocean uh, in um, on our planet. And so I really want to go to these hydrothermal vents, which are some of the highest density bio- biological communities on the planet. These, these life forms all live in this unusual area between freezing water and boiling water, and they live off the sulfur and the chemicals that are coming out of uh, the ocean um, and out of the earth. And so uh, I really want to go see these um, hydrothermal vents. I want to do a uh, dive on the Battle of the Coral Sea. There, in the South Pacific, there's a Japanese aircraft carrier and a U.S. aircraft carrier separated by uh, a few miles. It was the first aircraft carrier aircraft carrier battle. Uh, it's in about 12,000 feet of water. Uh, it, was re- it was mapped uh, several years ago by the Australian Navy and the U.S. Navy, but no one's ever been down to it in person. And so, you know, our hope is to do that in late 2019 or uh, 2020. So there's so many things to look at underwater, the Titanic just being, eh, pardon the pun, the tip of the iceberg. There's just so much more. Uh, Those are going to be amazing projects, too, and you're definitely exploring the ocean and sharing with us. I know that you even did a special uh, exploration of six-gill sharks in Puget Sound in the Seattle area. Um, Just briefly before we, we close here, tell us quickly about that expedition. Yeah, and that was not really meant to be a six-gill shark expedition. We had a, a client um, who um, had some property up in Desolation Sound in British Columbia and um, wanted to have a sub, uh, submersible up there. So we, we took the sub up and we took uh, this individual and his family and friends on a number of dives. And for those dives, uh, we baited, which is the sort of the common way to attract sharks. Or, you know, you, you basically yes. you put down as much dead salmon meat and, and guts as you can. And if you do it regularly, um, the sharks sort of uh, get trained in. They know at noon there's some food coming down the line. So we did this for a couple of days and went down, and there were a number of um, dogfish sharks that get up to about five feet, and they're sort of classic-looking sharks, the, the number being 50 or more, going around all the, the bait that we had placed down there. And then they sort of scattered, and along comes about a – 15-foot, you know, relatively young uh, six-gilled shark. So gigantic, uh, prehistoric-looking shark. Doesn't have a dorsal fin. It's it's got a big fat mouth, and uh, they're an amazing uh, shark. They they exist all over the planet, but they seldom come above a few hundred feet, except in the Puget Sound area. Most of the time, they're seen at a thousand, two thousand feet or deeper. 
um, but they come to the Puget Sound area to breed. And so they will uh, bring their young here, and they've been coaxed up to the surface um, once or twice, but generally they exist down at this point. We saw it down at about 500 feet deep, and it was chomping on a uh, a, a set of uh, jeans. We ran out of uh, burlap sacks. We filled a set of jeans (laughs) with uh, some salmon meat, and it was uh, chomping on those and and made for quite a... Uh, quite an exciting dive. Definitely. Well, we are so excited to hear more about your Titanic expedition. We wish you well with that. Thank you so much for joining us, Stockton, today on My Favorite Coffee Story. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We've had such an incredible time talking about ocean exploration, Ocean Gate's upcoming Titanic expedition, and also looking at the time capsule of life aboard the Titanic Um over 100 years ago. So thank you for sharing all that Stockton with us. And of course, we'd love for you to join us over and visit onikona.com for our 15% gift. And we can keep the conversation going. We'd love your questions on Twitter at Anikona Farm. So thank you for joining us. It's been a wonderful time together. We look forward to getting together again next week. In the meantime, we wish you a wonderful week and an aloha. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week 